If you would take your scriptures and turn with me to Psalm 105. Psalm 105, we will be reading the entire psalm. Psalm 105, would you give ear to the reading of God's word? Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, sing to him, sing psalms to him, take of all his wondrous works, glory in his holy name, let the hearts of those rejoice who seek the Lord. Seek the Lord in his strength, seek his face forevermore. Remember his marvelous works which he has done, his wonders and the judgments of his mouth. O seed of Abraham, his servant, you children of Jacob, his chosen ones. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever, the word which he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac and confirmed it to Jacob for a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, To you I will give the land of Canaan as the allotment of your inheritance. When they were few in number, indeed very few and strangers in it, when they went from one nation to another, from one kingdom to another people, he permitted no one to do them wrong. Yes, he rebuked kings for their sakes, saying, Do not touch my anointed ones, and do my prophets no harm. Moreover, he called for a famine in the land. He destroyed all the provision of bread. He sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They hurt his feet with fetters. He was laid in irons. Until the time that his word came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him. The ruler of the people let him go free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of all his possessions to bind his princes at his pleasure and teach his elders wisdom. Israel also came into Egypt and dwelt Jacob dwelt in the land of Ham. He increased his people greatly and made them stronger than their enemies. He turned their heart to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. He sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen. They performed his signs among them and wonders in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and made it dark, and they did not rebel against his word. He turned their waters into blood and killed their fish. Their land abounded with frogs, even in the chambers of their kings. He spoke, and there came swarms of flies and lice in all their territory. He gave them hell for rain and flaming fire in their land. He struck their vines also and their fig trees and splintered the trees of their territory. He spoke, and locusts came, young locusts without number, and ate up all the vegetation in their land and devoured the fruit of their ground. He also destroyed all the firstborn in their land, the first of all their strength. He also brought them out with silver and gold, and there was none feeble among his tribes. Egypt was glad when they departed, for the fear of them had fallen upon them. He spread a cloud like for a covering and fire to give light in the night. The people asked, and he brought quail and satisfied them with the bread of heaven. He opened the rock, and water gushed out. It ran in the dry places like a river. For he remembered his holy promise, and Abraham his servant. He brought out his people with joy, his chosen ones with gladness. He gave them the lands of the Gentiles, and they inherited the labor of the nations, that they might observe his statutes and keep his laws. 
Praise the Lord. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Father, you have given us your word and directed that we should study that word. You have done this so we and our children and their children after them may fear you. You have promised those who do this shall have a long life blessed by you. You call us to hear your word so we may be careful to obey. So things will go well for us as we work to carry your truth into the world. Then the numbers in your church shall grow through our witness of your grace. Thank you, O Lord. Thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for helping us to learn from it this morning. Grant us grace that we may apply all we learn and grow stronger and stronger in our witness. In Christ's name, amen. In the 105th Psalm is a meditation in the covenant is performed on God's part. The next Psalm, the 106, will be a meditation of the covenant as kept by Israel. They both focus on the predestining will of God, seen in his electing of men to holiness and obedience. They also show the mode in which human sin opposes itself to that will and cannot make it void. There is great disagreement over the time, place, and author of this psalm. Just a quick example. Some say it was written after the Babylonian captivity and by some unknown penman. The evidence says that's a little far off the mark. The first 15 verses of this psalm were written by David when the ark was brought from Obed-Edom's house to Jerusalem, and you can find that in 1 Chronicles 16, verses 7 through 22. So it seems pretty clear to me David wrote the whole psalm. This psalm was a very suitable song for such an occasion. It covered the movements of the people of Israel, how he watched over them, how he protected them from their enemies and from themselves. He kept this safe in every stop on the journey from Egypt to Jerusalem. Why did he keep them safe? Because of the covenant he made with them. In this covenant, when he declared to Abraham, I will be your God and you will be my people, he was promising, promising his continual watch care. In Psalm 104, we looked at Genesis and the creation of the world and everything in it. In this psalm, we are ushered into Exodus and Numbers as we consider all that God did in bringing his people into the promised land, which show forth his goodness to his covenant people. Now, you need to remember, you need to remember those words that Paul wrote about the Old Testament in Romans 15, 4 and in 1 Corinthians 10, 11. In these two verses, he tells us that everything written was to teach us so we could have hope. He also said that all these things that happened in the Old Testament were examples for us. We begin with the exhortation of Israel in a threefold call to his people. First, we hear a call to rejoice, verses 1 through 2. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him, sing songs to him. Take of all his wondrous works. Here we find the call to praise God's name 
and to proclaim his fame. Israel was given a great mission in this world. They were to proclaim to the nations the faithfulness of the true and living God. Everything God put them through was to give them opportunity to proclaim his glory. This was an example from the, for the New Testament church to go out and make disciples. The Israelites didn't do a very good job. And as we can see in our own day, in our nation, we have failed miserably in that commission also. We as a nation on the whole have turned away from God such that the era in history is now called the post-Christian era. Isn't that terrible? There are countless thousands of people who are living under atheism today. Millions more find themselves captured by false religions like Hinduism, Buddhism, Mormonism, and Islam. The two first verses of this psalm call us as the New Testament church to stand up and praise God and the gospel he has given us through Jesus Christ. As true believers, we cannot remain silent. We must be bold and we must stand on his word. Next, we also hear a call to return. Verses 3 and 4. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those rejoice who seek the Lord. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his face evermore. This is the call, the call to all nations to return to the call God gave them in his great commission. They must turn away from their wandering. They must turn away from their going astray in order to seek the Lord. This is what happens when God sends forth a revival. And boy, do we ever need one today. What we see over history is that no revival has ever been permanent. You can go to those nations that have seen great awakenings where great preaching seeded a revival and not find any hope left from such a time. Go to Wales, and you will find very little influence of the revival at the turning of the 19th century. The words of this psalm plead for a revival today. There is also a call to remembrance in the words of this psalm. Verses 5 and 6. Remember his marvelous works, which he has done, his wonders wonders, and the judgments of his mouth. O seed of Abraham, his servant, you children of Jacob, his chosen ones. This comes from the book of Deuteronomy, which is a book of remembrance. Throughout this psalm, we're told to remember. The problem Israel had was remembering what God had done for them. It was a weakness of all men. And as believers in Jesus Christ, we, we must be ever working at remembering all Jesus did for us. The hope of the psalmist in writing this rehearsal of the things God has done will result in a quickening, a quickening of their memory so that they might never forget all the blessings of their Lord. So this is an exhortation for the chosen ones of God. Be they in the days of David or in the last days. They are called to rejoice, to return, to remember all that God has done for them. And based on those things, to go forth and to declare the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we need to be doing. When you get up and leave here, go. Tell people about Jesus Christ. Tell them what he has done in your life. 
Witness for him. What we learn next about this psalm is that it carries a great expectation for the children of God. The psalmist begins with the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant God made between himself and Abraham and his seed. There has never been, nor ever will be, another covenant like this. Two things stand out in this section. How God provided for the covenant and how God delivered the covenant. How did God provide for the covenant? There are four things explained about his covenant. The first shows how sovereign God is. Verse 7. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. The one who made this unique relationship with Abraham and his seed is Jehovah our God. He is the covenant God. He's the creator. He's the one uh, whose almighty power was so significant that it was celebrated in the previous psalm. When God entered into this treaty with his people, he did so as the sovereign Lord Almighty. He was the sovereign in making this covenant. He was the king of kings and the Lord of lords. We also see in this how sincere our God is. Verse 8, he remembers his covenant forever, the word which he commanded for a thousand generations. This covenant he made with Abraham is a covenant with no end to it. God made it for a covenant that will last for all of eternity. This is the foundation of all his dealings with his people. He entered covenant with them through Abraham and to this covenant he will forever remain faithful. This shows that his promise to remember will last forever. It is alive and well for the children of Abraham by faith. His judgments are threatened upon the third and fourth generations of those who hate him. But for those who love him, it runs to a thousand generations and forever. His promise is here and it is commanded. It's filled with all the authority of the law. It is the proclamation of a sovereign. It's the edict of an emperor. It shall stand fast in every jot and tittle, though heaven and earth shall pass away. Therefore, let us, let us give thanks unto the Lord. Let us talk of his wondrous works, so wonderful for their faithfulness and truth. That's our commission, to go and tell others about Jesus Christ and what he has done. To remind them of his works of salvation. We also see the selective nature of God here. Verses 9 and 10. The covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac and confirmed it to Jacob for a statute to Israel as an everlasting covenant. This covenant was made with Abraham through the shedding of blood. As the animals were cut into pieces and laid out, the blood was shed. Then God made and ratified the covenant with the patriarchs. This is an example in the Old Testament to an event coming in the New Testament. It shows us the coming of Jesus Christ and the sacrifice he makes on our behalf. A sacrifice required only once, a sacrifice that will last forever. We also learn in this about how specific God is. Verse 11, saying, To you I will give the land of Canaan as the allotment 
of your inheritance. Here again is a picture of the old to the new. God promised. He promised a land of Canaan to Abraham as a place of safety and rest. It was only on condition of perfect obedience. But it was also a picture of the real land of rest, heaven. Jesus has promised that he, when he leaves to go to heaven, what's he going to do? He's going to prepare a place for us and he's going to come back to take us to be with him for all of eternity. How few were the number of Israel early on in Canaan? Verse 12, when they were few in number, indeed very few, and strangers in it. Please note that the blessings promised to the seed of Abraham were not dependent on the number of his descendants. The covenant was made with one man. Therefore, the number could never be less. That one man did not own one square foot of the land of Canaan. The smallness of a church and the poverty of its members are not barriers to divine blessing if it is to be sought earnestly by pleading the promise. Were not the disciples few in number and were not they weak in knowledge when they first began their work? Thus, because we are strangers and foreigners as our fathers were, we're not in any more danger than they were. We are like sheep in the midst of wolves, but the wolves cannot hurt us, for our shepherd is near. The Israelites were indeed a pilgrim tribe. Look at verse 13. When they went from one nation to another, from one kingdom to another people, moving as Israel did from lands of one tribe to another, they were divinely preserved. They were small in number and could have easily been destroyed. But there was a special mandate, a mandate issued from the throne of heaven for their perseverance. Their safety was not dependent on the graciousness of others and other people, but on the power of God. They were a divinely protected race. Verses 14 through 15. He permitted no one to do them wrong. Yes, he rebuked kings for their sakes, saying, Do not touch my anointed ones and do my prophets no harm. God allowed no one to do them harm. And this is a picture of the Christian being protected. Men cannot wrong the believer without God allowing it. The greatest of the unbelievers can't touch the believer without God's permission. And when God allows it, when he allows such, it's to show forth the faith of his children and his glory. The psalmist makes it clear. God calls us his anointed. That means that we are a people, a nation of priests, prophets, and kings, and God warns all others to be careful not to harm us. We are told that against the church, the gates of hell cannot prevail. Here is the end of the portion that was sung as the ark was brought into Jerusalem. It was sung as a symbol of the covenant and how God dwelt in the midst of Israel, which was once his glory and defense. And now, none touched the Lord's particular ones, for the Lord was among them, flaming forth in majesty between the cherubim. The presence of God, having remained with his chosen ones while they sojourned in the land of Canaan, 
they came to the time God exiled them to Egypt. Now this exile was not a punishment, but a blessing. In that he sent a famine that dried up their food source. He prepared a place where they could get the food they needed, and that was in Egypt. We first hear about Joseph going down into Egypt ahead of Jacob. Verse 16, moreover, he called for a famine on the land. He destroyed all the provision of bread. The food Jacob and his family needed to survive was taken away by God when he sent this famine. God had only to call this for this famine as he, a man calls for his servant, and he came immediately. How grateful should we be? How concerned should we be? God has for years provided for all we need, but will he not continue if we fail to be true to him? He can break the source of these provisions in a moment. God knew what was coming. He sent one to prepare to save his children. Verses 17 through 22. He sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They hurt his feet with fetters. He was laid in irons until the time that his word came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him. The ruler of the people let him go free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of all his possessions to bind his princes at his pleasure and teach his elders wisdom. God sent Joseph into Egypt ahead of the famine to prepare their way. We are told in these verses of the pain and suffering Joseph endured. He was sold into slavery by his brothers who called him a dreamer. And it's that very dream nature that brought them salvation. It was this very gift that would save them. He was told by the Midianites who took him to Egypt and sold him to the captain of Pharaoh's army. The man's wife lied about Joseph. He was thrown into prison. While in prison, he was given charge over Pharaoh's banker, baker and butler. He interpreted dreams for both. And he asked only that they try to help him get out of prison. Well, the baker's interpretation wasn't very good, and Pharaoh cut his head off. But the butler received a good interpretation. But he forgot Joseph. Joseph was in that prison for some 20 years. You know, we read the scripture, we think this is just a few weeks or a few days between these events. But he was there for 20 years. At the right time, God reminded the butler of Joseph and he told Pharaoh because Pharaoh had had a dream and no one could interpret it. Pharaoh released Joseph because Joseph interpreted the dream. He was then made second in command of all the land. Through all of these years, God tested Joseph, and not once did Joseph fail. Joseph was made the second in command of Pharaoh's house and of all of Egypt. He prepared the food needed for seven years. At the end of that seven years, God sent the famine. Joseph did for his family what they could never do for themselves. He was a type a type of Jesus Christ. He came to showing how salvation would come. Salvation comes to us through Jesus Christ and through Jesus Christ alone. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
It's Jesus Christ that Joseph is depicting in what he's doing here. Israel came down into Egypt. They came into the land of their enemies. There was, was, was were, were nourished for a while there. Shem, the blessed, came to lodge a while with Ham, the accursed. The dove was in the vulture's nest. God never meant that this should be forever. He promised them. He promised them it would be only for 400 years. It is the same with us as believers. The world is not our home. We are only sojourning here until we are called home. We have so much to look forward to in the life to come. Christ was sent just as Joseph was sent. Joseph came to save the lives of his family. Jesus came to save the lives of his brothers and sisters. Please, open your hearts. Open your hearts this morning and place your hope in Jesus Christ and in him alone. He has prepared a place for you. He is ready to carry you home with him if you will only believe in him. Place your hope and trust in Jesus Christ and in him alone. That's the only way, the only way into salvation. We come to the exodus of Israel from the place of sin. Never before, never before in our sense has the world witnessed anything like this. Over a million people living in abject poverty and slavery were gloriously emancipated, not by reform, not by revolution, but by redemption. Here again is a picture of what was to come in the New Testament. This is a picture of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the redemption he brought into this world. Verse 26, he sent Moses his servant and Aaron whom he had chosen. God sent Moses and Aaron clothed in divine might. He sent them to deliver Israel from the bondage they were trapped in. Verse 27, they performed his signs among them and wonders in the land of Ham. These two men, Moses and Aaron, called to show forth the power, the might of God did exactly that. The miracles performed by Moses and Aaron were mighty demonstrations of divine power. These were the credentials which authenticated their mission before Pharaoh. The Egyptian priests were able to copy a few of these miracles, but they soon gave up and admitted that Moses and Aaron had a greater power with them. Verse 28, he sent darkness and made it dark, and they did not rebel against his word. He sends darkness across the land of Egypt. This was no natural darkness. This wasn't something like that, that could be accounted for as the blinding dust clouds that would at times come off the desert. It was beyond all precedent and out of the range of ordinary events. It was a horrible obscurity, which men felt clinging unto them as though it were a robe of death. This is not the first plague on Egypt, but is mentioned first here because it is a fit description of the entire period of those plagues. If this makes you stop and shudder at the thought of being trapped in such a horrible darkness, you need to think. You need to think what is descending over our nation as we come further away from God with some of the most abominable sins known to man. 
For the Egyptian people, this plague brought them to the point they were ready to let Israel go. But Pharaoh, Pharaoh's heart was so hardened until he still refused to listen to God. Verse 29, he turned their waters into blood and killed their fish. Water is the gift of life. God took that gift and turned it into death. The river supplied the main source of their food, which would have been fish. But all the fish died, and life would be impossible to continue after a period of time. The hand of the Lord touched them where all classes of the people would become aware of it and suffer from it. Verse 30, their land abounded with frogs, even in the chambers of the kings. Where the fish could not live, the frogs flourished. And their numbers became so great, they invaded everything, including Pharaoh's own chambers. If the frogs had come on the land and not into the king's own apartments, Pharaoh, he would have taken little notice because he was a hard-hearted man. God took care. He took care to make sure Pharaoh felt the horror of this plague, as did his people. Verse 31. He spoke and there came swarms of flies and lice in all their territory. In this, you can see the power of the divine word. God needed only to say, and it was done. He sent into the land of Egypt small creatures that come call, they could cause great discomfort. So many, it was all but impossible to stand their bites. Pharaoh had little left to be proud of when his own body was invaded by such terrible parasites. It was a slap in the face which would have humbled his, should have humbled his heart. But man, when his heart is stoned, will not be humbled. Man maintains his self-conceit, making him the most disgusting object in the universe. And he still vaunts himself. Verses 32 through 35. He gave them hell for rain and flaming fire in their land. He struck their vines also and their fig trees and splintered the trees of their territory. He spoke and locusts came, young locusts without number, and ate up all the vegetation in their land and devoured the fruit of their ground. What we learn in these verses is the absolute destruction that God sent upon the land of Egypt. He sent hail to break down their trees and kill their livestock. He sent with that hell fire to burn their fields and leave them with very little. He struck what was left with disease and brought their trees down. He then spoke and there came locusts to devour anything that was left. You can see through these plagues how devastated Egypt became. Yet Pharaoh would not relent. His hard heart destroyed his land and caused unbelievable suffering to come on his people. This is a good lesson for you. Do you want to be the source of the suffering of those you love? If you're not, then turn your heart to Jesus Christ and let him lead you through this life. Acknowledge your hard heart and ask God for a new heart, a heart of flesh. If you come with a broken heart, he will hear and he will save. Verse 36. He also destroyed all the firstborn in their land, the first of all their strength. Having destroyed the land and Pharaoh continuing to harden his heart, God touched the very flesh of Pharaoh 
and his people. He takes away the glory of each household in one night. Pharaoh feels it as much as the lowest slave in Egypt. What a cry went up from the land of Egypt when every house cried out for their firstborn. Oh God, what a triumph came to your people in that hour. You with a strong arm delivered your people. Verses 37 38. He also brought them out with silver and gold, and there was none feeble among his tribes. Egypt was glad when they departed, for the fear of them had fallen upon them. The Egyptian people. The Egyptian people had come to see the Israelites as a scourge on their land. I think you can understand why. They wanted them gone. God had made their hearts open to even pay the children of Israel to leave, and that's what they did. So Israel plundered Egypt. God gave Israel everything they needed for their journey and for their new home. Is this not what Jesus Christ has done for you? He has provided for you everything you need for this life and for your life to come. The fear of the Lord had fallen on Egypt and they were ready for Israel to leave their land. Israel had so many experiences in their deliverance from Egypt and as they wandered in the wilderness. The pages of Exodus and Numbers are filled with those experiences. The thing that stands out in all of those experiences is the faithfulness of God. The psalmist speaks out two such events to highlight God's faithfulness. Verse 39. He spread a cloud for a covering and fire to give light in the night. Never, never were a people so favored. God sent a cloud to shade them from the sun, to guide them in their travels. He also sent a cloud of fire to give them light at night to protect them from their enemies. What we understand from this is that God was their sun and shield, their glory and their defense. So Jesus Christ is our son. He is our shield. He is our glory and our defense. And he protects us from our enemies. Verse 40. The people asked and he brought quail and satisfied them with the bread of heaven. We see in this verse the wicked request of the Israelites. They were testing God. Could he give them meat instead of this manna? Yes, he could. And he did. To show his power. But they paid for it when that meat turned sour in their stomachs because of their unbelief. It was the manna. The manna that was the bread of heaven. And it is that bread that sustained them for 40 years. Verse 41. He opened the rock and water gushed out. It ran in the dry places like a river. With Moses' rod, the rock split. The water came forth to give life. From the the most unlikely sources, out of all sufficiency, God can supply his people's need. He can supply it out of the the air, but he chose to use the rock as a picture. Hard rocks can become springs of life-giving water. Springs with such supplies to make rivers in dry deserts. We see the rock here as the type of our Lord Jesus Christ. Living waters flow from the fountain, which shall never be exhausted until the last pilgrim 
has crossed over the Jordan and entered Canaan. Can anyone doubt the grace of God to Israel? It was in His grace that we see Israel exalted above the other nations. Verse 42. For He remembered His holy promise and Abraham His servant. Here's the secret reason for all of this grace. Spurgeon says, The covenant and He for whose sake it was made are ever on the heart of the Most High. God remembers His people. He remembered Abraham, His chosen one. Because his covenant is ever before him. He could never forget or fail to keep it because it was his holy promise. Verse 43. He brought out his people with joy, his chosen ones with gladness. God led them out of the wilderness, rejoicing over them himself and filling their hearts with joy also. They were his people, his chosen. Those in in them he rejoiced. He showed his favor on them so that they might rejoice in him as his children. Remember the covenant? I will be your God and you will be my people. Here, as they come into the promised land, is the covenant made real in their hearts. Verse 44. He gave them the lands of the Gentiles and they inherited the labor of the nations. God removed the peoples living in Canaan and gave their land to Israel. The favor of those people, their cities, homes, and farms were all given to Israel such that they did not have to work for them. They were a gift from God. What semblance do we see in that to the new? You don't have to work for your salvation. Why? Because it's a gift from God. Verse 45. That they might observe his statutes and keep his laws. Praise the Lord. This was the practical design of it all. This chosen nation was to be a protector of the truth. It was to stand out as a moral people. It was to be a testimony of the greatness of God. This was indeed a high calling and a glorious election. It involved great responsibility. What a blessing. What a blessing. It was such a blessing that they could do nothing more than lift their voices in praise. Is that not what we're supposed to be doing here this morning? We've gathered here, what? To praise the Lord. Why? Because Jesus Christ was sent into this world to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. In conclusion, let me ask you. What happened? Why did Israel fail? They failed because the hearts of the people were not changed. With all they saw, with all they received from God, their hearts were unchanged. This is why the Messiah had to come. He had to be the agent that would change their hearts. He came not to show great miracles, but only miracles of love. It was only when a people came to see their sin, see their need of a Savior, that this covenant could be completed in their hearts. I hope, I pray, this great covenant has touched your heart. That you have have placed your hope in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. For he is the embodiment of this great covenant, this covenant that can save your soul and fill you with God's goodness. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we come to you this morning to worship you in all we do. 
We know we're dead in our transgressions and sins in which we used to live. We once followed the ways of this world. We lived among the wicked and sought to satisfy ourselves with sinful things. We were by nature children of wrath. But because of your great love shown to us in Jesus Christ, you who are rich in mercy made us alive in Christ, and by your grace we have been delivered from sin, Satan, and death. O Lord, you did this to show your incomparable riches and to express your kindness to your people. Thank you, Lord, for your grace that saves our souls. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.